Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. We need to be conscious of the solution to climate change not being worse than the problem. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Welcome to episode 150 of Suncast. And just like that, we glide ever so gently into season four of the show. And if you're following along, that means that every 50 episodes, we go into arbitrarily another season of the show. Well, I can hardly believe it. It feels like yesterday we hit 50, then 100 episodes. Are you keeping up? What did you like about episodes 101 to 149? What are you still hoping I'll be bringing to the show in this new season. Well, today's entrepreneur is an iconic figure, sure enough, but his name may be one many of you warriors haven't heard of. I'll bet, though, he's touched your life and you didn't even know it. I sure didn't, and I've spent more than my share of time with products that he was responsible for. Yep, I teased it in the title, but today's guest is none other than Mr. Hank Rogers, the founder of Tetris Inc., responsible for licensing the eponymous game to Nintendo, debuting on Game Boy and going on to be one of the top-selling downloaded games of all time, which in turn created a small fortune for Hank, who has now dedicated his entire career to solving the climate crisis. Blue Planet Energy is one such company that he's launched, aimed at driving cost reduction mass adoption of energy storage. Listen in today as we not only discuss Hank's marvelous entrepreneurial path, but where this visionary sees the future taking us. Show notes, book recommendations, links, and more from 150 plus founder stories and solar startup advice are archived over at mysuncast.com. And hey, while you're there, would you check out our Suncast tribe? It's my inner circle of listeners and trusted advisors who receive exclusive content that goes beyond the scope of these Suncast episodes. Click that Become a Member button to learn more. For now, let's tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, Solar Warriors, today we're going to have fun. We have an entrepreneur I am certain many of you will be hearing about for the first time. I was a newbie to his background and the company that he started that has anything to do with the solar industry until my good friend Gabriel Perez was hired to one of his companies, Blue Planet Energy. Mr. Hank Rogers is one of the world's leading advocates and activists for weaning humankind from fossil fuels. And if that sounds like a grandiose task and a title for Mr. Rogers, it certainly is among the many accolades that he has achieved in his entrepreneurial journey. His efforts through Blue Planet Foundation have helped pave the way for Hawaii's 100% renewable energy commitment by 2045. Through Blue Planet Energy, the company I just mentioned, he's led development of a leading energy storage system, advancing safety, reliability, and energy output of battery systems. But he's perhaps probably best known for a different Blue Planet, Blue Planet Software. Prior to focusing his talents on environmental protection, Hank was a pioneer in another realm, the 1980s Japanese computer gaming industry. Yes, He's known as the father of the role-playing game segment of Games in Japan and introducing that as a category. What many mainstream enthusiasts like you and I might recognize him for is Tetris. That's right, the game of Tetraminos that sold more than 35 million units on Nintendo and is the paid downloaded game of all time. For you millennials out there, Facebook's version of Tetris Battle has been played more than 20 billion times with a B. And as I say that, I watch Hank's eyes uh, roll back. It's it, the, the game that he brought out of obscurity has certainly become an industry icon 
So today we're going to see how it all fits together as we explore the multifaceted endeavors of the polymath at Hawaii named the Entrepreneur of the Year, Mr. Hank Rogers. Welcome to Suncast. Thank you for having me. So your background is really fascinating, and it's one I think that deserves some introspection. You're a Dutch kid raised in New York. I'm wondering how you got involved in gaming at all and, and why Hawaii and how Japan came onto the scene for you. Okay, let's go back. You know, I've, I guess I've always been a gamer since I was a, I remember playing Monopoly when I was like an elementary school kid with my friends. And so gaming has always been a, a big part of my life. I went to high school in New York City and uh, it's my first chance to touch a computer. I went to a math and science high school, Stuyvesant High School, and we were probably the first public school to have a computer. I mean, back then, punch cards. It was expensive to have, you know, even the simplest compute power. Yeah, we would put in our punch cards and get the printout two days later, that kind of thing. And so I fell in love with programming. I mean, it was so empowering. It's like a bodybuilder discovering a bulldozer. <laughs> and That's it's like, analogy. okay, so... All of a sudden, whatever I thought I was capable of doing was just multiplied by hundreds mm, or right, thousands right. of times. Levels of strength. Intellectual, yeah. of, uh, how can I say, capability, doing something and then doing it over and over and never getting it wrong. You know, that, that kind of thing. And I sense a, a certain air of awe in that technology. There well, was right? awe. There was just like, oh my God, we're just starting into a whole new realm. <laughs> yep. For context, this is in the late 60s, early 70s, right? This is late 60s, early 70s. And when it was um, 1970, I guess, 73, I'd moved to Hawaii. The whole family had moved to Hawaii. They were on their way to Japan. And after being in Hawaii for a year, the family moved on. By that time, I was going to University of Hawaii. Why? I just gobbled up all the computer courses. You know, computer science was my thing. Got to the point where... It became clear to me, I've used up all the night school computer courses. And uh, my teacher said, if you want more computer time, you're going to have to go to day school. Okay, <laughs> whatever. Mm -hmm. But I'm not taking any core requirements. I had no intention of going to college. So I went to day school and I majored in computer science and I minored in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> we had a club, a gaming club, yeah. I guess. We did simulation. I'm betting you were the game master. Um, sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes, uh, I did do a little bit of coding so that we could have, you know, sort of a dungeon master aid. Mm. So he wouldn't have to roll the content of every room yeah. as we went through the dungeons. Uh, ARG, it was called, uh, the Alternative Recreational Realities Group of Hawaii. Wow. <laughs> ARG. <laughs> the original Dungeons and Dragons, uh, rules left a lot to be desired mm -hmm. and we would have to make up all these extra rules to simulate all the other situations. And that's kind of the job of the dungeon master. But then we created, we call them ARG rules. So I was part of that creative process of figuring out what else needs to happen that isn't covered by the, by those three little booklets that the original right. D&D uh, provided. Six years later, I, I found myself in Japan and uh, personal computers came up. So I was a six year blank where I didn't get to touch computers at all. But all of a sudden I could get my own computers, like, wow. I said, well, what am I going to do with this thing? So I decided to write a role-playing game, and I absolutely had no idea what I was talking about. A la Dungeons & Dragons. Something a la Dungeons & Dragons. I'd, I'd never done anything as, except homework assignments up till then, and I just set up to build a role-playing game. It's like wow. never having built a house and saying, well, I'm going to bite off a skyscraper here. Yeah. <laughs> it was um, an eight-level dungeon, uh, 30 monsters, 30 bodies for the, the, the actual characters. You could actually have your own face and your own body. There was no inventory. You could see everything that you owned. So if you had a sword, you would be, you could, you know, your, your I mean, character's is this, holding it. Like is little, this 8-bit or like? It's 8-bit. This is like, unbelievable. yeah. And it's all, it, this whole thing fit into 64K. That's amazing. You didn't yeah. even have the, the graphics capable to see the faces. It the was... graphics were, I mean, compared to Apple, mm. uh, I would say the NEC, that was the pretty good graphics. Right. They're eight colors. Right. And it was a bitmap, not yeah. a raster scan. So bitmap, 200 dots by 640 by 200. Wow. They had to have better graphics because they had to display Japanese characters. Right. And so that requires a bit higher, higher resolution than alpha, alphabet. Yeah. 
So uh, the graphics were nice. And uh, so that was good. That I had that as an advantage. What I didn't realize is that nobody in Japan plays role-playing games. Yeah, not, not Dungeons and Dragons, not Nothing. offline. There and wasn't online. Yeah, so. and so when I came out with the game, I had to actually teach people how to play a role-playing game. I had to go to magazine to magazine to teach them how to play. Wow. And then the magazine articles came out. And so the, and first, so the articles featured how to play. Oh, it started off with SoftBank reneging on their original deal to buy 3,000 copies. And they wow. were, it went down to 600 for Christmas, which is the, like the top selling when season. When you were supposed to make it, yeah. I was supposed to. That was the beginning of my company. And by the time March came around, the magazines all came out. And in April, we had orders for 10,000. And every Amazing. month it was 10,000, 10,000. We were the number one game in 1984. I love it. So it gave me a publishing company. That's a platform. And the game I, was something Quest. It was called the Black Onyx. Oh, Black Onyx. That's right. Yeah, it was the Black, Black Onyx. Onyx. Iconic in the Japanese gaming industry. There you go. In, in the gaming industry at all. A lot of people in Japan who are in the business of making role-play games credit me as the reason that they got into it. You birthed a generation of, uh, of gamers and uh, computer, computer scientists. Yeah. That's so, amazing. Yeah, not, not, bad for, not bad for a publisher. Not bad for a start. Not, not <laughs> bad for, for a first attempt. Yeah, you know that's, pretty, that's pretty good. I'd say that skyscraper stood on its own after the first, all. The first one was a home run. And, and uh, my mm. next really big home run, I guess, would be Tetris. And that, right. By that time, I made the decision that I wasn't going to make all the games for the company because it right. was just too much work. I never got to see my wife and kids. Yeah. And so I started traveling around the world looking for games to bring to Japan I found Tetris at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. No way. Of all places. I, I mean, mean, so when you say you found it, was it, there was a booth? It was being shown at the Spectrum Holobyte booth. They oh, right, had, because Spectrum Holobyte had it on the Commodore 64 before uh, anyone else. They, they had, um, they had it on that? the PC and Mac. Oh, really? The Commodore 64 version was actually Mirrorsoft in, uh, oh, okay. in England. Ah. And there are a couple of platforms in, in England. I think the Amstrad and the BBC, whatever and neither of those companies had any idea of what they actually had. Right. They were publishing it and they thought it was going to be something that lasts a couple of weeks and right. let's get on to the next game right, kind right. of thing. So no, neither of them really paid attention to it. Yeah. They didn't understand it. And so you started asking questions? Well, I started playing. So at the, you know, when you're at the, at the Consumer Electronics Show, you, you stand in line okay. waiting to play at a, at a monitor at a console, to yeah. play a game. Okay. And so there's, there's hundreds of games and then you're supposed to make it. I, I as a publisher in Japan, had to go and uh, look for games. And so you have like, I don't know, 30 seconds or a minute to figure out whether you like a game or not, whether it's interesting enough to go to the next level and have a conversation with the publishers or the owner of the IP. Because there's so many games, you only have like one shot for each game. By the time I was there standing in line for, to play Tetris for the fourth time, for the fourth time. I, I realized, uh, I'm okay, sorry. I'm kind of hooked on this game. This, yeah, There's something, something going on more than, than just you know, meets the eye. I went after the rights. I've been after the rights ever since. Till I met the guy who, uh, who actually made the game. The, yeah. I went to the Soviet Union. Yeah. And uh, we became partners and we're still partners today. I love it. And actually, I'll circle back around because I think there's something deeper within how you uh, ended up acquiring the rights that will tie into the entrepreneurial journey. So thank you for sharing that. And the software company you were mentioning was Blue, Blue Planet Software. The original company was Bulletproof Software. Bulletproof, that's right. Yeah, we don't mess around. Yeah. <laughs> Blue Planet Software didn't come onto the scene until 1995. Oh, okay. So what happened is the original license from Alexei Pajetnov to the computer center to Elektronor uh -huh. Technica, the, the Ministry of Software, to Bulletproof Software, my Japanese company for uh -huh. Game Boy, and to Nintendo for console. That original license was made to last for 10 years. So from 1985 to 1995, mm -hmm. the rights were not with Alexei, had just basically assigned them for that period of time right. to the computer center. And so at the end of 1995, all those rights were supposed to revert to Alexei. And he told me, listen, these, you know, the people from the, the ministry, which had become a private company, are going to claim that I had no rights, that it was Soviet Union, that there were no intellectual property rights, and that they registered the trademarks and the copyrights, so they have all the rights. Yeah. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Right. He, he read that one correctly. Mm. And so he asked me to help him exercise his rights. And so 
I formed Blue Planet Software to be the company that made the business with him. I love it. To uh, fight for the rights of Tetris. I and love we it. did. And you've been fighting under the Blue Planet banner for the rights of global citizens ever since. Blue Planet is, um, the concept is, I was based in Hawaii. And you start in Hawaii and you try to have a worldview starting in Hawaii. Mm. Well, if you're in Hawaii and you back off the planet to see the entire world, right. it's pretty much a blue planet. That's right. A little blue marble. Hawaii-centric worldview. And there's a lot of good reasons to have a, a worldview starting in Hawaii. You know, Hawaii is sort of the last paradise, if you will. It's the, mm. It was the last place that was discovered on Earth. Is that right? I would say so, yeah. Because when you think about it, well, I'm not even talking about the European voyages of discovery because right, right. every place that they discovered already had people. Right. You know, so... so and you're, you're referring to uh, the, the original, last place that was actually, yeah. The original Polynesian. Right. Uh, where, where humans discovered a new uninhabited place. Right. Gotcha. And that happened many hundreds of years before Europeans showed up. And right. in very rickety double-hulled canoes, sailing vessels, and by that, by that time had figured out how to navigate using uh, celestial navigation. Sun, the moon, the stars, yeah. uh, the wind, the waves, and the birds. Those were all indicators of position and direction and so on. And so Hawaii was discovered. It was probably the last place to be discovered. It's the farthest away from any yeah, other landmass. When humans first came to Hawaii, there were no animals, so and to so, speak. There were only birds. And where did the original Polynesians originate from? Probably the, the navigating, the sailing came somewhere in the area of Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Genetically, it's, the, you know, they, they trace the, gene, the Polynesian genetics to Taiwan. Oh, wow. Which, of course, the present day Taiwanese have nothing to do with the right. Taiwanese of those days and For the sure. old days. So Blue Planet, I love the name, and it's one I think that for anyone in the clean energy business evokes a sense of understanding. I feel like outside of our industry, you probably have to explain it a little more. It does feel like something that, because of the little blue marble, Blue Planet uh, has, a, a, has a resonance. Blue so dot. The blue dot, little blue uh, dot, yeah. Yeah, so the pale, pale blue, blue dot. dot. I yeah, knew that was I Carl Sagan, yeah, yeah, Sagan, pale blue dot. I knew I was saying it For wrong. those of you who don't know what that is, there's a picture that was taken by, a, by, I think it was Voyager. Yeah, it was Voyager. And it was looking back through the rings of Saturn mm -hmm. and seeing in the distance this little pale blue dot that was Earth. It was the last, and the he, last known sighting from Voyager of Earth. And he called it the pale blue dot. Mm -hmm. And that's Carl Sagan, one of the, arguably one of the greatest astronomers of all time. And philosophers in some way. So he called, it a, called Earth a pale blue dot. And maybe, you know, if you're looking at our solar system from another solar system, that's all you'd even know. Yeah. But, you know, the blue could mean that there's water and there's atmosphere. Right. And there's all these, all these good things mm -hmm. that are evoked by the blue. Yeah. Help me understand, through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and probably I'm guessing into the early 2000s, you established yourself as a business person who is consciously bringing new ideas to bear within your industry. That's what I see from the various sort of touchstones of how you built your business. And uh, I love the story about creating Blue Planet software to uh, emancipate the rights of Tetris, right? Help me understand then, how you transitioned from a gaming industry guy into clean energy. How did you decide to turn what might be the second half of your career towards climate change and solving this next problem? There's a period of time when uh, games came out for mobile phones. And uh, I got ahead of that curve in this country. It was already happening in Japan. And nobody seemed to know what was going to happen in this country. So I decided to start a company to make games for mobile phones. Blue Lava Wireless. Started that company in 2005, sold that company for a boatload of money. I mean, it was when a company goes public in your space, it's the time that you want to sell your company because the number one company wants to stay number one right. and the number two company wants to become number one. Right. And you get like a 20% bump on your valuation by being number one in your industry. And so there was then a feeding frenzy. And, you know, the number one company at that time jammed that. They're Major title was Jamdat Bowling. There's no IP in bowling. Anybody could make a better bowling game and, and take their business away. 
And so they were looking for something for an IP that would anchor their, the money that they'd raised to, to grow. And they had raised it in the public offering? <clears throat> public. They okay. went public. Right. <laughs> they gave me all the money they, they raised for Amazing. when they went public, basically, and sold the company a year later. The cash that they gave me was nice. The stock that they gave me, which was restri- restricted, I was supposed to hang on to it and bleed it out little by little. All of a sudden, when they sold the company to Electronic Arts, became cash. Wow. So cashed out again a year later. So I, you know, I'd accomplished all this and made all this money. And it's a month after I had sold the company, I'm, I found myself in the back of an ambulance on the way to the hospital with 100% blockage of the Widowmaker, which is the largest artery in your heart. You're, you're a dead man. Yeah. I was a dead man. And I'm, I'm looking at the at the ceiling of the, of the ambulance, I'm going, you got to be kidding me. I haven't spent I any of the money it. yet. I was like, <laughs> no, is, that, you set up, some kind of a bad joke, you know? And you probably uh, hadn't set up any, any way to transfer I that wealth, right? I hadn't done anything. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the transfer is not even the issue. It's like, why do I work so hard? And I, yeah, what's it all for? And the second thing I thought was like, no, I'm not going. I still have stuff to do. Yeah. And I kind of like worked in that ambulance, in, in, in that blink of an eye, I said, this is not how I die. I don't like, mm. my legacy isn't going to be that I made a bunch of money and died. That's not enough. I want my life to, to mean something. So then I started searching for my missions in life. And I had a couple of weeks while they wouldn't let me go back to work. And I found my missions in life. And then I pivoted. I said, okay, I'm now, now I'm going to work on my missions in life. And uh, first one came to me in the back of the newspaper you know, I, I used to surf and dive when I first came to Hawaii and I fell in love with the ocean. And this newspaper article says something like, oh, by the way, we're going to kill all the coral in the world by the end of the century. Wow. And why is that? It's ocean acidification caused by carbon dioxide going into the ocean. And I'm going like, you idiots, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. We, we can't do that. You know, we're talking about like one of the greatest mass extinctions in geologic history and we're the cause. So what's causing this is carbon dioxide going into the ocean. And I said, okay, we got to stop producing carbon dioxide. So mission number one is to end the use of carbon-based fuel, which is the source of all carbon dioxide, man-made, anthropomorphic, man-made carbon dioxide. So I've been on it ever since. Uh, I Mm. formed uh, Blue Planet Foundation to that end and formed it in Hawaii. And we made Hawaii our first Well, test bed, if you will. But I feel that I can't, I live in Hawaii. So I I feel I'm not in a position to ask other people to clean their room if I can't clean my own room. Right. And so first thing we we had to do is clean up Hawaii. And we've been on that ever since. And frankly speaking, it took a lot longer for me to get to first base, which is the the mandate, uh, the mandate to go 100% by 2045. Right. And for you, that's first base. I love it. I, it's, <laughs> so, it's first base. That's, that's, that's a whole game for some people. <laughs> no, it's, it, but it's totally first base because I love it. Shoot, if, just, even if we get there. Yeah, these are first principles. Like we have to be a sustainable energy society. If we cannot become sustainable, we're doomed. We're going to like br- drink our last drop of water, breathe our last, you know, whatever of oxygen. At the end of the day, we have to get to the point where we're living sustainably on this planet. And anyway, so Hawaii is the first place. And then we can use the model of how we did it in yeah. Hawaii with the rest of the planet. Yeah. And that's basically can, where I am now. Can you tell me the name? I'm not good with Hawaiian names. The name of the ranch and the lab? Oh, so I have a, you know, part of the perk of selling your company is you get to buy a ranch. <laughs> a, ranch <laughs> a ranch is uh, pu'u va'a va'a. And pu'u is a Hawaiian word for cinder cone, like diamond mm-hmm. head is a pu'u. The difference between the pu'u that's next to my ranch and diamond head is water got involved in diamond head and the yeah. top blew off. So there's okay. a crater yeah. on you know, this hill with a crater in it because of the water and steam explosion. But the, the pu'u next to my ranch, pu'u va'a va'a, is intact uh, because we're at the, the bottom of that hill is, is probably where my ranch is, which is around 20, 22, 2400 feet above sea level. Va'a means canoe. Mm -hmm. So there are various theories about why it's hill canoe, hill canoe canoe. The canoe part is we're probably one of the older cinder cones on the island of the big island of Hawaii. And as a result, there are little valleys on this one. So 
kind of looks like an upside down cupcake. It's got these little furrows. Yeah. Uh, you could say that they look like canoes. And that's one way of looking at it. I have another theory um, because it's older than the volcano that's next to, next to it because the, the volcano spews out new lava flows, you know, regularly. Um, right. We're on an active volcano. Yeah. The soil on the poo is deeper than the soil everywhere else. And so the trees must have been bigger then. Better for canoes. Better for making canoes. That is fantastic. And well, let me explain a little bit of how, how I got to actually wanting to take an active part yeah, in sure. the industry. Because mm-hmm. theoretically, I could have just focused on the, on the uh, foundation and try to legislatively move Hawaii in the right, right direction. What started happening is part of the legislation that we passed was um, helping the solar industry. And when we passed the legislation, there was some kind of a tax break oh, right, for, yeah. for doing solar. Collectively, everybody thought, the legislators thought, well, we're probably going to achieve 30 megawatts of solar in two years or whatever it was. Right. Well, we achieved 300 megawatts. Yeah. And everybody was like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? We had, at the peak, we had 200 solar installers in, in Hawaii. And so, I mean, two companies, 200 companies. The electric company started saying, ho, 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 we can't handle more than 15% of intermittent renewables on, on the grid. So they stopped giving out licenses to be able to connect to the grid. So this whole grid type thing was coming to a screeching halt. And I'm saying, it can't stop here. And so I thought, well, if the electric company won't let me connect to the grid and use the grid as my battery, why not just go off grid? And I had no idea what I was talking about, Yeah. Uh, but I made that decision. And so got together with my guys at my ranch and say, listen, let's, get off, let's go off grid. What is it going to take? And, you know, we made all the early mistakes. We, we started off with vanadium redox flow batteries, yep. spent about a year with them until they stopped working. And uh, the company... It was uh, Prudent Energy, which is uh, imprudent, actually, <laughs> a deal, was bought by the Chinese. We never heard from them again. Mm. And so now we have these vats of vanadium, like acid stuff at the ranch, which we're waiting for some way to get, get rid of them. There's They're no toxic. easy way to get rid of them. Yeah, it, it's a low-grade acid, uh, but okay. there's a lot of it. You know, there's like big right. vats of it. Yeah, and it's just waiting for something to happen. And it's it's a non-functional technology at this point. Well, it functions somewhere, and I think the vanadium is worth something. Right. So somebody at some point, I've had several people say, "Well, we'll take it away," and we'll, you know, I said, "We'll take it away," but yeah, it's still there. Yeah. I said, "My next battery is going to be a benign chemistry. I don't want to have a right. like an ecological disaster, and it's going to be sold by a company that is still going to be around twenty years from now." Yeah. So we had narrowed it down to Sony and Tesla. And, you know, I was in love with Tesla, Tesla cars, Elon Musk. I mean, shoot, I was in, quoted in the Huffington Post, who's my hero, I said, Elon Musk. Why? Yeah. Because he's got planet-sized dreams and he's got planet-sized balls, balls. to carry them off out with. So, I love it. <laughs> so, I mean, this guy is like over the top and he's going to space. And he's so an that's execution all good. machine. So it's like, he never, bang. Yeah. The problem is, is that the chemistry is still a nasty chemistry. Mm. So the, the Tesla batteries are in my car, they're in, my, in your phone. Yeah. Nickel, it's and, lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese. Got it. And it's, cobalt is just unhappy. It's a nasty chemical. You've been quoted as saying it's a bad actor. <laughs> it's a bad actor. You need to, you know, like, and you can tell it's a bad actor by the fact that the company that produces them is supposed to take the batteries back at the end of life. Right. And dispose of them. Yeah. This means that you can't just like whatever. And, you know, how many people are going to have the wherewithal to actually send those batteries back at the end of life? Yeah. And is Tesla still going to be around at that time? You know, feel like they will be, but, you know, are they going to be in a position to take back all the batteries that they've ever manufactured? Yeah. I don't know whether they're equipped to do that. So we're talking about a little bit of an ecological disaster. So we looked at the Sony batteries and they're lithium iron phosphate and lithium iron phosphate, lithium iron and phosphate are all benign. Yeah. So what's the end of life? End of life is landfill. You can just put them anywhere because there's yeah. no ecological bad news. The other thing is they don't get hot. And so what that means is that when you're charging the, my Tesla, the cooler has to be on because you're cooling the batteries. Right. Uh, if they you know, overheat, bad news. 
bad news. You're talking about like if if you reach the point where you have a thermal runaway, then we are talking about fireworks. Yeah. These things, it's not a fire because there's no way to put it out. It's mm-hmm. a firework. It's like setting off a uh, It goes a until all it the goes fuel until, is exhausted. Until the chemical's all gone. Yeah. So the instruction to firefighters in a lithium nickel cobalt uh, manganese fire is stand back and wait till it's over. Enjoy the show. Because there's nothing, yeah. And if it's in a building, just imagine, it's going gonna, it's gonna to yeah. take down your building. Yeah, a building like your house where your kids are sleeping. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. That makes me reconsider where I'm, gonna, where I'm, where I'm storing my car. <laughs> yeah, you think about that. It, generally, you know, I, I charge my car when I know where it is. Right. And I don't know what the situation has to be, but there's got to be some kind of a temperature. There's got to be something. I don't know. Right. It's happened several times. I trust Tesla enough to have them tell me, get out of the car, we're about to melt you down. Right. So I'm okay with that part yeah. of it. But in my house, I, I just don't want to take that chance. Right. And they can replace your car, but not. <laughs> yeah, not replace your things. house and yeah. replace your children. No, I don't think so. Yeah. The fact that it doesn't get hot and the fact that we don't need a cooling system just means that the battery is more efficient. Yeah. So the nice thing about our batteries is that you can take them all the way down to zero and yeah. charge them like 90% in an hour and 100% in two hours and no cooling system. Yeah, so complete no moving deep cycle. Parts, yeah. Complete deep cycle, no moving parts. And how long can you do that deep cycle on a coconut? That deep cycle, they've tested it, gosh, way past 8,000 cycles. That's, that's 20, 20 years. years. So they've actually tested it to 14,000 cycles, which is more than 30 years. So we're talking, you can take it to zero and back to 100 every day for 20 every day, years. Every day. Does it deliver... Power versus energy? I mean, is there a power energy trade-off in terms of storage for iron phosphate? The trade-off, I would say you're not going to get acceleration out of our batteries. Okay. But we don't need to go zero to 60 in 3.2 seconds right. in a house. Right. That never happens. No, it's a, it's a stra- steady draw. It's, it's a steady draw, yeah. yeah. I mean, you might have a hairdryer or you might have a, you know, some appliance that draws a lot, but it doesn't draw nearly what it mm-hmm. takes to get a car to move that quickly. Yeah. And so... It's just not necessary to have sure. that kind of acceleration on our battery yeah. for a home battery. Yeah, Safety is much more important. So is there a commercial application where iron phosphate begins to become limited? If you look at uh, the total life cycle of, of the battery, we're the cheapest battery because we last the longest. Right. You know, every other battery, you have to replace it after yep. five, 10 years. Lead acid is, is even three to five years. Tesla batteries have probably got 10 years on it before you have to replace it. And then, you know, like replacing it, costs something. Yeah. You know, there's people that have to come to your place. And so there's human labor every time you do an installation. So you have to add that to the cost of the battery. People, people always look at the battery. Oh, those are cheaper, but you know what? You need to have a human come and bring them to your house yeah. and install them. The Tesla batteries, the lead acid batteries, they're all too heavy for people to move. It's, t- it's 200 pounds hanging on your wall with a power wall. I'm not saying our batteries are lighter. They're not, but you only have to install them once and then they last 20, 30 years. Right. So probably going to outlast your panels. The value proposition there is not unlike the current solar salesperson trying to compete against a lighting retrofit, only it's one-to-one, right? You're competing against other batteries and you're saying, but wait, you aren't taking into account these externalities and the life cycle of the product. You're just looking at first costs. First cost, and then, you know, there's the life cycle and then, then there's the the end-of-life costs. Right. Incredibly intuitive and user-friendly, FTC Solar's Sundat software makes creating project layouts seem like playing Tetris for utility-scale solar. With detailed DC electrical design, civil analysis, and no system size limits, Sundat is the industry's most powerful design automation software. Did I mention that it automates tracker layout optimization, iterating on complex scenarios of GCR, module strings, backtracking, and more? If you are tired of waiting for design automation to catch up with utility project layouts, then sign up for your free trial of Sundat today. Just click on the Sundat logo at mysuncast.com. If you're excited about learning from the entrepreneurs that we have here on Suncast, and you are eager to discover ways to capitalize on the pending solar and storage boom in Puerto Rico, boy, have I got the perfect melding of opportunities for you. On April 29th, I'm hosting an exclusive event with Forbes contributor and my personal social media strategist, James Ellsmore, at the Vivo Beach Club in San Juan, Puerto Rico. 
Come spend the day with us and participate in this one-day intensive mastermind session with other executives and leaders in the renewable industry. There are only 20 spots available, and they'll sell out quickly. Learn more and claim your ticket at www.attendprecharge.com. That's attendprecharge.com. See you in San Juan. So I understand the uniqueness of Blue Planet Energy in the marketplace. And for those who are really interested in Blue Planet Foundation and what Hank and his team have done in Hawaii with their lab, I'll post in the show notes an article from Solar Pro, which did a phenomenal job of really explaining the path to commercialization and why you chose uh, the specific technology. In fact, I got the Cobalt is a Bad Actor quote from that article and now I understand. I actually had misunderstood. I was on the phone with Catherine Von Berg from uh, Simplify, another iron phosphate uh, technology. And I misunderstood that lithium iron phosphate is, in fact, still a lithium ion battery. And I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding in the marketplace, right? Yeah, it's huge. So when we ship our batteries around the world, what it says on the box is lithium ion. Mm-hmm. And so we get classified as the same hazmat as lithium nickel cobalt manganese. And it's because those batteries, if you drop them from a certain height, they they will cause some serious damage. And it's a question of time. I think, you know, the manufacturers of our batteries, the the owners of the IP of of the lithium iron phosphate IP should get together and get a new designation. Yeah, seems Uh, like. Like, you know, let's not call them lithium ion, let's call them iron phosphate or ferrous phosphate or something else that distinguishes them because you lump them together with the others that are dangerous. It's like, it's like lumping gasoline and water together. Yeah. So I'm completely unfamiliar and I'm learning a whole lot more about storage, but beyond Simplify and Blue Planet Energy, who else are iron phosphate? I recently, I, I think there are something like 40, uh, 40 something other licensees That's great. of the technology. Licensing from? From Hydro-Quebec. Ah. Hydro-Quebec is the owner of the IP. Oh, wow. How about uh, I, I that? I don't know whether they discovered it, whatever it is, but they have a serious research facility. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hydro-Quebec makes all of their money by selling uh, electricity to New York, New York State. Oh, right. And so they've got, they're flush. They've yeah. been flush forever, but they're not resting on their laurels. Yep. They are working hard to figure out what, what's the future. And, you know, this is like, like Kodak figuring out digital photography. Right. The difference is, is that they're actually doing they're something about it rather than just like, ah, oh, yeah, well, this is not our business. Yeah. They license to a bunch of different companies. Including Sony. Including Sony. Yeah. Well, it's no longer Sony. Sony sold their battery business to Murata. Mm. And that's because Sony pivoted from being like an electronics giant to be a content company. They make games, they make movies, they make music. They kind of lost interest in, in the electronic side of it. For those unfamiliar with Murata, can you explain how Murata is well positioned? Yeah, so Murata is a huge company in, in Japan that mostly makes parts for things like iPhones. Okay. There are certain parts in the iPhone and I, I guess other, other smartphones that mm-hmm. are only made by this company. And so wow. that's, it's a multi-billion dollar a year business doing mobile phone parts. And of course, in that, they also got into the battery business because they, they want to make batteries for mobile phones. Right. They are looking for a place to expand. You know, they've already cornered the market on, on mobile phones. And so now they need to go into a new area to expand. They got money to expand. They got energy to expand. Is Murata also Japanese? A Japanese company. They're based okay. in Kyoto. So I have a question for you that for me, I, I, I'm, I'm curious about business model. You looked at Tesla, you looked at Sony. There are 40 licensees of lithium iron phosphate. Why did you choose Sony? Uh, and I'm wondering if, there, if it was a connection to Japan and your, your uh, sort of the, the tie there, your impl- implications of quality, et cetera, or if it was relationship driven as well. Well, it's both. I was in the computer game business, so I had a long relationship with Sony. Right. I was in bed with Sony before the first PlayStation came out. It was called PSX in the very beginning. They didn't have a name for it yet. And uh, we did a bunch of development for them. I knew all those guys. And then, of course, we became publishers. If you fast forward, you know, my relationship was with uh, the boss of Sony Entertainment Game Business for North America, Kazi Rai. 
Kazuhiro Rai went out on to become the president of all of Sony. But it's not the reason that I, not specifically, he's not the reason that I got into the battery business. Uh-huh. I had this relationship with Sony and they would show me new stuff. So whenever they came up with like a bunch of new stuff, they would show it to me and they were just like, wanted to pick my brains as to what to do with the new stuff that they've yeah. invented. And when they showed me the batteries, says, wow, this could be the answer to renewable energy storage. And I sort of put those things together. And so we used their batteries to take my ranch off grid. They were, they were wonderful. They're still working off the, you know, no problem. Nothing ever overheated. I mean, you, you touch them and they get lukewarm, basically. We've had to expand because, uh, because we have more need. And that's how it works, by the way. If you have more of a demand over time, you can just add more batteries. It's no big deal. And you went leveraging the experience of licensing technology and IP in the gaming industry helped you, I'm sure, uh, with your relationship with Sony and how you built Blue Planet. As I understand it, you guys are licensing through Sony. You're bas- you're, you've, you're, you've created a product on top of the Sony battery Yeah, so it's not, a lic- it's not a licensing relationship. We actually buy the modules from Sony. So right. it's, it's Sony sells, or now it's Murata, sells a right. battery pack mm-hmm. that contains a ton of the cells inside and the hardware to monitor. And so... Inside that module, we have the capability to, to monitor what's happening in each cell for 30 years. Right. That data is in there. And so we can suck out that data and find out if anything, any cell is going wrong uh-huh. anywhere. And then we can pull a module and replace it if necessary. That hasn't happened yet. Mm. But that is the possibility. And then the other thing that Sony made was the, the battery management unit, which basically you take a stack of nine of the battery modules and now you've got a, a BMU, a battery management unit that watches all of them and makes sure that that the charging and discharging is happening the same. This is the thing that goes wrong with batteries. If they charge or discharge unevenly, then they get out of whack. And that's why they always tell you don't mix different kinds of different makes of batteries because they have right, different right. charge and discharge profiles. They watch this very carefully to make sure that they charge and discharge all at the same time in concert. So that technology is, is awesome. For the second generation, we actually worked together with them to create a new BMU, and that's half ours and half theirs. Okay. So it contains some of their stuff and some of our stuff. Fantastic. I'm wondering what mental models you've built for yourself as an entrepreneur over the time of being a publisher, establishing yourself in one industry and moving into a new industry. What sort of tools do you bring to... Blue Planet Energy and it, that positions you in a unique way. Yeah, so I'm not just doing this business because I need to make another dollar. I've already made enough dollars. Uh, I made an agreement with my wife a long time ago. If I make this much money and put it in the bank, then I wouldn't have to work anymore. And I, that's how much we agreed on. That's how much money I put away. I never have to work again. So I want to help renewable energy. And if you go back in time, you know, for computer games, my rule of thumb was I never want to work on a game or sell a game or have anything to do with the game that I don't want my children to play. Mm, Wow. And that's a simple rule of thumb, but it just means that you're not, there's no gratuitous violence. There's no like, and it's not a dumb game and so on and so forth. And I feel the same way about the battery business. You know, I don't want to be part of some ecological disaster in the future where they're looking back and say, why didn't they choose that technology instead of that technology? We wouldn't have this huge problem with all of this nasty chemicals all over penetrating the groundwater. We need to be conscious of the solution to climate change not being worse than the problem. And so batteries are the the dirty part of the business right now, by and large. And we need to be a little bit conscientious about it and make sure... First of all, that we don't kill people with the batteries. And second of all, that we don't create some kind of a nasty chemical problem in the future. I want to read a quote from the Solar Pro article that really stood out to me. It said, if we could reduce the amount of oil that we buy, bearing in mind that Hawaii purchases $5 billion worth of oil per year, if we could reduce the amount of oil we buy by only 20%, we could put that money back into people's pockets, raise standards of living, and build decent housing for the homeless. That's just based on a 20% reduction. Imagine if we could eliminate oil entirely. If we really thought, I love this part, <laughs> if we really thought 
our way of life depended on it. We could transition to 100% renewables in five years. And you cited examples from World War II. Right. Radar, sonar. We went from biplanes to jet planes. We invented all those, radar, sonar, and reached levels of efficiency in production. Yeah that were unheard of. We were up to the point where we were producing a Liberty ship per day. Yeah. We were building ships faster than the Germans could shoot them down. I Amazing. mean, it was just incredible what we did. Roosevelt called in the leaders of General Motors, Ford and Chrysler and said, what business do you think you're in? And I said, we're in the business of making cars. No, you're not. You're in the business of making planes and tanks. Wow. And he like flipped them from making it. There wasn't mm -hmm. a, another car produced for the rest of the war. And it's basically because we face an existential threat. Right. Well, hello, we are facing an existential threat right now. You know, maybe we don't all die. Yeah. But things are going to change so bad that places where we grow food now aren't going to be productive anymore. Yeah. And so all those people are going to have to move. So every place that we think we're going to get our food, that isn't the way it is in the future. And so what is that? Mass migration and then sea level rise. Just think... Bangladesh alone, that's 400 million people. Where are they going to go? We think we have a refugee problem today. Right, yep. Wait till we get a couple of meters and rise walls, in sea and level. walls won't fix it. The, it's, <laughs> walls won't fix it. Yeah. Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So we need to solve the problem and then stabilize the earth. We have enjoyed relative stable sea level for the last 10,000 years. And you could say this is the entire rise of civilization. Right. If you look at the historical record, sea level has been lower by 180 meters and higher by 70 meters. Neither of those are very interesting if, you've, if you're like a coastal city like New York. It just doesn't make any sense. To that end, who knows where civilization will go, but you uh, do have what many might think are controversial views. Help me understand how Earth itself as a lab is helping prepare humanity and the moonshot type of goals that you are working for. So it's not only me, but there's a number of people who have, have thought past the end of their careers or past the, the thing that they're doing right now and, and said, you know, humanity must become a multi-planetary species. We must go other places. And you could say that a lot of the things that are going on in the world now, like overcrowding, pollution, all these things, all have to do with us getting to the point where we should be breaking out of our shell yeah. as a chicken, whatever you want to call it as an embryo, and then growing to the next level. The next level is multiplanetary for many reasons. But let's just take one. 65 million years ago, the dinosaurs went away. Why did they go away? It's because they were too stupid to make a backup. And guess what? We're all here. So we're yeah. pretty much as dumb as the dinosaurs right now. Once we have established life, as we know, on other planets, the chances of an extinction event go down to pretty much zero. We need to have that insurance policy. I... I'm a developer, so you make backups. Yeah. You, you don't put all your eggs in that bag and then frag your hard disk. That doesn't make any sense at all. That's one. But then the other way of looking at it is life as we know it exists in every possible ecosystem on this planet, at the bottom of the ocean, underneath the ice, at the top of the mountains. You find life everywhere it can exist. We haven't found it off this planet yet. So life hasn't been able to get off this planet. Mm. And guess what? We are the way that life gets off planet. You could say that Mother Earth is pregnant and we are it. And basically, once we take life, as we know, to other planets, then everything will be okay over here. And the reason it's going to be okay over here is because in order for us to survive on those other planets, we have to learn how to be 100% sustainable. Right. At a million dollars a kilo to send stuff to the moon, you're not throwing out anything. That's right. There's no waste. There's no waste. There's zero waste. And so all of the technologies that we learn that we need for, to survive on other planets, we come back and use those technologies here. Just think of the space program, what it's already generated. Solar panels yeah. came out of the space program. Who knows what's going to come out of the settlement of the moon and Mars program. Yeah. All those technologies are going to be necessary for us to survive here. Yeah. We need to become 100% sustainable. What have you changed your mind on? Changed my mind on, oh, okay. My original mission number one, was to end the use of carbon-based fuel. If I say that and go viral with it, it riles the oil companies mm. and the gas company and the coal companies because we're like going front, frontal attack on them. And the problem with that is, first of all, we are not 
about trying to destroy those industries. That's right. not the purpose of what we're doing. We're trying to become sustainable. So yeah. I've pivoted. So now it's all about renewable energy. Yeah. We need to become 100% renewable. And I invite those oil companies and the coal companies and the gas companies to join us and be, become part of the renewable energy. They're in the in the energy business, you know, whether they are moving oil or whether they're moving hydrogen. That's right. Uh, you know, it's the same thing. It's energy business. So they should be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So rather than saying end the use of carbon-based fuel, I say let's go for 100% renewable. That is a clear goal. This is the problem with the, the Paris Agreement. It's two degrees. They, let's all hold hands and stay within two degrees. Nobody me knows what that even means. Yeah. How do you stay within two degrees? How do you measure it? I've come to the conclusion that we need the world, countries, companies, states, cities, all need to have a clear goal that's achievable. And that clear goal is to go 100%, I say by 2045, because we did that in Hawaii and California followed us. Right. 2045 is five years ahead of IPCC, yeah. saying that we have to go 100% by 2050. It also happens to be the 100th anniversary of the United Nations. What better legacy for the United Nations but to have solved climate change by 2045? I mean, the reason for their existence would then be like amazing. Yeah. They're supposed to exist to keep us from starting wars. It obviously hasn't worked. Uh, <laughs> but this clear and present danger is even bigger than the danger that we faced at the beginning of World War II. Hank is a man who wears his mission on his, uh, literally on his sleeve, in this case on his toes. Um, the, the, uh, the Chuck Taylors that he's sporting today say 100% by 2045 on the toe. And, I, and, it, and it speaks a lot to his personality and his character, the way that he is not only out there in the front, uh, on the front lines, charging hard for what we all believe is right, but it is, it's front and center of his mission. He wants everyone to know it. I want listeners to be able to extrapolate your business acumen into their world and their mission and their, their problems they're trying to solve. I think the, the, the simple answer to that is your business needs to solve a problem. Uh -huh. You as an individual, you, know, you, you have your own thing that you don't think is right about the world. Whatever that is, go and fix it. You know, Don't like wait until the end and say, damn it, I could have spent you know, time and energy, I could have fixed that problem. And especially to those of us who have already had a success, a business success, don't just die with your money. Don't give it to your children and spoil them. If they want money, they can make their own money. Give them an education, give them a house. Use your money and use your talent to do something, to fix the world, something, and then let that be what you're known for. You know, at the end of the day, you could say Bill Gates is known for Microsoft, but now he's being known for other things. He's doing good things with his money. And so that is where every entrepreneur needs to go at the end of the day. Don't spend the rest of your life collecting more money. Do some good with it. Do you think there's a tangible example I, as an entrepreneur, would be able to take from how you negotiated the rights to Tetris? How I negotiated the rights to Tetris. If you look back at my first trip to Moscow, you know, I came in, I showed them, you know, Nintendo Tetris. And the first thing they said was they, we never licensed that game on, on console. I'm going like deep, deep kimchi. But basically my method was, look, I'll give you an honest explanation of what my business is. And I'll give you a fair share of the money. Up till then, previous contract that they had, the, the Spectrum Holobyte, it went from company to company and they got 6% of 6% of 6%, which is zero. Oh, yeah. And they didn't figure this out until many quarters into the future because each licensee reports in the next quarter. Yeah. It was ridiculous. It was like they were so being so they spanked. were hoodwinked, yeah. They were hoodwinked. And I said, look, don't get a percentage of a percentage. Get a piece of the action. So when I offered them for Game Boy, yeah. I said, I'm going to pay you this many cents per unit and it doesn't matter how many people get in between, how much I spend in advertising, you're always going to get that, that amount of money. Yeah. And so, duh, it was yeah. the, the clearest, most easy to understand business deal for them ever. Game Boy was coming out in the US and mm -hmm. they needed a game to pack in. And I convinced Mr. Arakawa, I said, look, you should pack in Tetris. 
And he goes, why? I have Mario. I said, well, if you want little boys to buy your Game Boy, then pack in Mario. But if you want everyone to buy your Game Boy, you pack in Tetris. Because right. Tetris is a game that's played by, by everybody. Ageless, genderless, you know, there's no culture behind it. And then you can still sell Mario and make the money on Mario. You know, every little boy will want your Mario anyway. So don't give it away. So, uh, and so he they did. were going to give away get, get Mario. And, and that was the original idea. They, they, switched, uh, they switched to putting Tetris in they there. They loved you. Um, the numbers, yes, 30 something million on uh, Game Boy. If you add up all of the box product, meaning that you can go to the store and buy the product, we're probably 70, 80 million copies of Tetris. Yeah. And on mobile, there was a time period when people actually paid you to download a game. Yeah. So we have, and that's our, uh, by far our biggest is like over 500 million paid downloads. How did the like Facebook uh, Tetris Battle, for example, roll out? Was that something that, again, is licensed from you all? Yes. And wow. that is, in fact, with my partner in that business is the ex-president of Nintendo. Wow. Yeah. So we, we've been in business for quite some time doing that. I believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. So I always ask, what book have you recommended or gifted the most and why? Maybe Stranger in a Strange Land by Heinlein. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure why, but uh, yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of imagination. There was autonomous vehicles in that story. It was a pretty interesting vision of the future. Is there a recent book that you've read that really gripped you? I don't find myself having lots of time. The last book that I, was, I would say that, that really moved me was uh, 1Q84 by Haruki Murakami. Uh, he's a Japanese writer that has become an international phenomenon. His books have so much imagination. Yeah. It's just off the end of the scale. I tend to gravitate towards fiction rather than nonfiction. My opinion is that nonfiction becomes dated very quickly. Yeah. You read it today and then it's like all of next year, next year. It's like by the time it's published, it's already old information. If you want to know what's going on, you can go to the internet, get up-to-date information. But you know, visions of the future or alternate universes and all that, that's creation yeah. at its best, a human creation. And I think that at the end of the day, that's all we have. Yeah. You know, machines will do all of the, the grunt jobs, so to speak. All of the things that a robot can do, robots will do. Driving cars will be something that robots will do or AI will do. So everything that can be done by AI will be done. And what's left is our imagination. I don't think uh, computers will ever have imagination. What habit or consistent practice has had the greatest impact on your life? I have a tendency to, basically, I like people. Mm. And I think that that uh, is something that's helped me in my entire career. So every person that I've ever done business with, I've liked. And as a result, it's easy for me to become friends with them. So I'm basically friends with the top people in every company I've ever done business with. You know, I don't distinguish between the top people and the bottom people because I've been a bottom person myself. So I pay equal attention, give equal respect to everybody in a company and everybody that I come in contact with. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see the janitor and say good morning or uh, strangers yeah. in an elevator. And that's, I think that's the way, well, people like to do business that yeah. with people that like them. Be good to people. Yeah. And you do a fair deal. The idea is that it's, it's got to mm. be a win-win. And if during the relationship, it like gets out of kilter a little bit, you need to sit down with your partner and say, how do we get it back to the win-win? Yeah. Because if one side makes all the money and the other side is like struggling, the business isn't going to last. And then the whole thing falls apart. You know, what we need to do is create an equilibrium that works in the long run yeah. and build business relationship and business, how can I say, business model that works in the long run. And then everybody can, how can I say, live happily ever after. <laughs> how can the Suncast audience help? You've got missions that you're on. How can we help? The Suncast audience specifically, the thing that we need to achieve is 100% renewable. And so my new foray, if you will, is to go beyond Blue Planet Foundation, which is focused on Hawaii, wants to create the mandate and then continuing on to make sure that we achieve the mandate. The next phase is, is to create these mandates 
in all jurisdictions in the world. If we don't, <laughs> then we're going to have trouble surviving in the future. So the mandate is 100% by 2045 or yeah. sooner, of course. If, yeah. you, if you have a small country or a small city, whatever, you can do it way sooner. Sure. But don't, do, don't wait till after 2045 to achieve it. And the thing that's, that's interesting about the mandate, as you said earlier, is once, once we got the mandate in place, the electric company was our biggest opponent for the tw a mandate of 2045, 100% by 2045. And they, oh, we can't do this and blah, blah, blah. There was all these reasons that they had. And then finally the mandate passed and then they actually hired somebody or some people. They, they put a team of people to look at the problem. And then they came back and said, you know, we can actually do this by Faster. 2040 yeah. and save ratepayers $7 billion. Oh my goodness. It's like, are you serious? $7 billion? Where is that published? Where, I want to be and, and like, <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying that we would have, if, if we do business as usual, we, the ratepayers in Hawaii, would have to pay $7 billion extra yeah. over the next 25 years. $7 billion. That's a lot of money. Yeah. That's, that, that covers the homeless problem. It, it covers unemployment. It covers low salaries, high rents. I mean, like our way of life, it's taxation yeah. without representation That's is right. what that is. You know, we send this money to places that send us oil and what do we get for it? We get sea level rise and, and, and coral death. Oh man. So once you get the mandate in place, all the companies in your jurisdiction will figure out how to do it. Yeah. And if they can't, then you get somebody who can. Mm. That's, a, that's what I say. If, if your electric company says, sorry, I can't do that. And then the answer is, that's okay. We'll find somebody who can. Because there are people out there, there are companies out there who can do this Amazing. today, using today's existing technology. We don't have to wait till 10 years from now. We have the technology today and it's cheaper. Yeah. It's cheaper. Solar is already cheaper. Already Wind cheaper. is That's already right. cheaper than, uh, than fossil fuels. So what excuse do we have for continuing on with, you know, with fossil fuel? The, the answer is right. nothing. Well, whereas if you're thinking that you'd like to lean your shoulder into this in, in earnest, you can check out Blue Planet Foundation. There's lots of uh, resources there on how they helped Hawaii get to the mandates. I'd love in another another opportunity to hear your thoughts on green new, uh, the New Green Deal and all the other ways that we're trying to do this. So the next level is going to be the Blue Planet Alliance. Okay. And the Blue Planet Alliance is alliance of any country, company, city, any jurisdiction that has made a pledge to go 100% renewable by any date, 2045 or sooner. That is the alliance. And so we're looking, we're asking NGOs, governments, institutions, anybody who has any control, companies, yep. uh, to all join in our effort to go 100% by 2045. I love it. Once we all agree, then that's what we're going to do. We can actually solve this problem. Yes. There's a clear goal. There's a clear end. And by the way, this is a huge business. There's going yes. to be a trillion dollars of business going into this whole renewable energy future. And batteries is a huge part of it. Yeah, and we're, we've just uh, we touched the tip of the iceberg. Well, let's end today, as we always do, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? I usually say what's in your crystal ball. We've talked a lot about your prognostication of the future. So I'd love to know what you might expound upon, what's in your crystal ball that maybe nobody else is really focused on. I don't know if nobody else is focused on this, but I, I do believe that there is a, a certain point where all of a sudden people say, I'm not putting up with the status quo. Mm. I don't want your dirty energy. I don't want to be part of making the world a worse place. I want to, I want to be part of cleaning up. Right. I want to create a world that I want my children to live yeah. in. Do you feel like that's imminent? I think it's imminent. I think we get to the point where everybody just gets fed up with it. And basically we move on because it is time for us to move right. on. We, again, we have all the technologies we need. We just have to move on from where we are hmm. to the next level. Hank Rogers, iconic in uh, now multiple industries and uh, certainly leading the charge for 100% renewables by 2045. Sir, it has been a true pleasure to have you on Suncast. Thank you very much. Great talking to you. Indeed. That's a wrap with today's solar and climate warrior, Hank Rogers of Blue Planet Energy. Hang tight, though, and I will share some goodies with you. 
If you'd like to have a closer look at my notes from today's discussion or just learn more about Hank, then click on that listen button at the top of my suncast.com. That'll take you to the episodes page. And there you'll get the show notes, social media and website links and fantastic book recommendations, as well as over 150 other interviews chock full of goodness. While you're there, do check out our Suncast tribe where you can be a part of our inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Click on the member button to learn more. And finally, don't miss out on the upcoming Puerto Rico events that we have teased. To learn more about our one-day mastermind, check it out at www.attendprecharge.com. And to learn more about the Solar Power Puerto Rico event, be sure to tune in tomorrow as I'll have a special Suncast Soundbite episode featuring PJ Wilson of CESA, the Solar Energy and Storage Association. We might just have a special discount code for you. Hey, I'm grateful you chose to be here. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.